and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. Every few weeks we share discussions about the craft and importance of journalism in Australia and the world, often recorded at our events. Journalists work relentlessly to give the most vulnerable people in society a voice, but at what price? This year we ran a national public awareness campaign themed What Price Would You Pay? And we were asking Australians to reevaluate the price they'd pay for quality journalism that impacts everyday lives. This campaign highlights the price journalists pay from legal pressure to death threats and features award-winning journalists. In this episode, you'll hear from award-winning journalists about what it takes to make great journalism and why this work matters. This talk was recorded at RMIT's Melbourne campus on August 15, 2019 at an event presented in partnership with RMIT. Just a content warning on this episode, our speakers cover some pretty heavy topics, including mention of sexual assault, violence and bullying. There's also a bit of swearing in this discussion, so if you've got kids around, maybe save this one for your headphones. This is also a longer than usual episode for us. Woman Jenker, everyone, and welcome to RMIT. I'm Alex Wake. We're here today on the unceded lands of the Woiwurrung and the Boomerang language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land here, and we pay respects to them and to all other First Nations people here with us today, on whose lands we conduct our university business. On behalf of the two journalism programs at RMIT, the Bachelor of Communications Journalism and the Graduate Diploma of Journalism, Thank you for attending this special Walkley event. Journalism at RMIT is very proud of our strong link with industry in this city and beyond. We would particularly like to welcome home all our alumni who are with us today, especially those who are on the panel, and of course, to all members of the Academy. We're joined tonight by our journalism staff here at RMIT, who I think are some of the very best in the country. It's one thing to do journalism, it's quite another to teach it and to teach it well. Great journalists are more in demand than ever before and we think we turn them out by preparing them with things like our brand new fact-checking and verification course, the very first of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. Please be aware that our extremely capable first-year journalism students the next generation of much-needed journalists are busy writing stories, live tweeting, snapping pics, mojoing and blogging. If you do not want to be featured in the media, please clearly invoke Chatham House rules or hide under a rock, perhaps for the AFP. But enough from me, I'd like to introduce Louisa Graham, the Chief Executive of the Walkley Foundation, for the formal introduction of our wonderful guests. Well, thanks, Alex, and hello, everyone. So, um, I'm Louisa. I'm the Chief Executive of the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. So, if you haven't heard about us, and I'm hoping you all have, the Walkleys are a pretty big deal. We hand out awards at the end of each year that benchmark the best and excellence in journalism. And it's pretty competitive because every journalist wants to win one. And can I tell you, do not get between a journalist and their Walkley. It gets pretty ugly. So our mission is to benchmark the best, but it's also to engage the media 
and the public in valuing journalism. And that's a really important mission, particularly in these times when trust in journalism is challenged. We have the AFP raiding journalists and media organisations. So the Walkley's brand is a trusted brand and it's at the centre of the industry and remembering that excellence and remembering that trust is important not just for journalism but for the public at large. It sets the standard, the industry standard of excellence. And if you read or watch or listen to a Walkley winning entry, you know that it has been peer judged and approved by the best in the year of its publication. And that's no mean feat because journalists are pretty tough judges of not only themselves but of particularly of their peers. So the Walkley Foundation is independently funded and we're giving back to support and sustain the industry. And with the help from our funders, we're investing in a number of programs. So earlier this year, we handed out $75,000 in grants to journalists to produce stories in the public interest that otherwise wouldn't be told. So if you're an aspiring journalist or a student, you can apply for those grants and we'll be opening those again in March next year. And that's pretty important because we've seen in the news organisations that the publication of stories are more difficult. So to have this additional source of income to tell those stories is pretty important for the journalistic ecosystem. And we'll see those stories start to roll out later in the year. So I would say we can't look to our future without learning from our past. And at the Walkleys, we're digitising the archive of 60 years worth of Walkley winning stories. And often journalism is the first draft of history and also it's that best in journalism. It will be a great tool for students, academics and historians alike. And we've got a pilot up on the website and you can search, for instance, Indigenous stories or stories about women or stories about industrial relations. So it's a pretty great tool. And so with funding, we hope to realise the rest of that archive in the next couple of years. And for many of you here in the audience, we're also investing in the next generation of journalists. So we manage paid scholarships and fellowships which provide career pathways and of course we have our Young Journalist of the Year awards for those 28 years and under and, and that includes students as well. So if you're not aware of it, I do encourage you to go to our website and learn all you can about how you can take benefit of all these great programs. So we're delighted tonight to be working with RMIT to bring you this event in Melbourne because the other part of what we do is get all Australians talking about why great journalism is important, its impact and why it should be valued and supported. And I think that's really important because I think as an industry, you know, as journalists, we do this great work, but we don't actually beat our own drum. We don't actually say to the public, you know what, this journalism matters. It holds the powerful to account. It changes lives. It, you know, initiates royal commissions. And that's what tonight's panel is going to be about. They're going to be sharing those stories about the price that they've paid for that journalism. And earlier this year, we released a national public awareness campaign called What Price Would You Pay? And with the thanks to many of our media partners, the campaign ran outdoors, online, print, and on social media. And it encourages Australians to think about, well, what price do journalists pay for the work that they do? And, and it's quite significant, and you'll see, you know, from the video that I'm about to play, but, you know, and we need to seed that notion with the public that journalists pay a price, you should be paying for that content as well, wherever you can, or, or the government should be funding that content. So I think that that's a, a pretty important notion, and that will be the theme of tonight's stellar panel, and we've got a great lineup 
of journalists, including Zena Chama, Lisa Martin, Grant MacArthur, Louise Milligan, Caroline Wilson, and Lauren Moland. So now I think we're going to invite our panellists up on stage, and as we do that, Lauren Molan is our moderator tonight, and she'll introduce the panellists, but Lauren has her hands full running the new INQ team across four locations and three states. Previously, she was a producer and chief of staff at the project on Network 10 for just over four years, and before that, she worked in television production, trade magazines, and communications. So shortly we will welcome our panellists to the stage and we will have a Q&A so you can all ask some questions as well and I do hope you enjoy this evening and make sure you do go to our website and, and check out some of the great opportunities and work that we're doing. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining us. I've been really excited about this event for a couple of reasons. The first is it's a great topic and something that I'm really looking forward to discussing tonight. And also we've got an incredible panel tonight here to speak with us, some people that I actually personally in my own profession have been wanting to, to meet and speak with myself for some time. So this is going to be a really great night. And the third reason is I studied at RMIT and so for me it's really exciting to come back here and see so many students' faces and, and people who are still keen to be journalists after all the things that are being thrown at us at the minute and who still really want to take up the profession and who are interested in coming along outside of their studies to come and, and be a part of events like this. So I think, good on you. We've, the panellists have, have been introduced, but again, we've got Carolyn and we've got Grant, Lisa, Zena and Louise is on your way, and myself. I think we should just get straight into it. I guess rather than getting you to kind of recap your bios, perhaps the best way for everyone to get to know who you all are is maybe by way of answering a question. So I guess to kick things off, I think it'd be really great if maybe you could all tell me what you think your idea of quality journalism is. How do we see it when we recognise it? How do we safeguard it? And how do we make sure that, you know, in our careers, despite what we might be asked to do by our editors and our producers, that we can continue to protect quality journalism? Carolyn, do you want to... I'll kick it off, yeah. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Quality journalism is accurate journalism. It's journalism that takes you to places you can't normally go. It's stories that people don't want you to write. It's good writing. There are so many elements that make up a good story, but for me, it is the ones that generally make you feel a little bit sick in the pit of your stomach when you go to make that first phone call, to be brutally honest, and that's a feeling even now after 30, more than 30 years as a, a senior journalist still happens. Yeah, you've made me feel sick thinking about that. <laughs> um, absolutely, that happens all the time when you, you know, you have to run and have a coffee before you make the phone call because you're too scared to make it. You know, you're probably making a, a phone call that's worth making. I think that the best journalism is a challenge. It's a challenge to work on and it, it should be a challenge for the people to digest when they're reading it. It, it has to make a connection doesn't necessarily have to be a good connection. It, it has to be one that, that challenges the person reading it and, and digesting it. And I, I think that when you're, whatever medium you're putting out, whether it, it be TV, multimedia, print, whatever, you have to have a variety of stories. You have to have things that people want to read, but you can't just keep giving people what they want. You need to put things in there that they need to know, whether they, they want to know or not. And the point is getting that mix right, but but you have to have things in there that challenge people. Otherwise, we're just not doing our job. We're, we're just entertaining. Quality journalism is about telling stories that are in the public interest, that create social change, 
that speak truth to power, uh, that inform voters to make decisions about our democracy. And I think it's also really important that they're stories that are written in plain English. They don't assume that the audience are experts. I'll give like a, a good example. Like during the election campaign, everyone was talking about it being the climate change referendum. And I was at home and my mum had come to visit to deal with a tradie at my house that day and we were sitting down watching the 7.30 report that night and Bill Shorten was being interviewed by uh, Lee Sales and they were discussing Labor's policy on the Adani coal mine. And my mother dearest turned to me and said, what's this controversy about Adani? <laughs> and she, didn't, she hadn't heard about this story and I think a lot of people feel left out of the news cycle because they're not following things closely and so it's about making it accessible to a broad audience and telling the story well so everyone knows what's going on. That's a that's a great point I mean that's really broadening I think people's uh, general understanding of quality journalism is not just hard investigative journalism but something that I guess grabs a wide audience and makes them think differently about the words that's a great point. Yeah, look, just touching on what everyone else on the panel has said, I think good quality journalism is also providing a voice to those who maybe not, who don't have a voice, the voiceless, and also obviously being fair and accurate is very important. Really good journalism can really make an impact in that regard because you can really make a change and help tell stories that, and change people's lives and potentially educate people and have them think differently with different perspectives. So yeah, really for me, it's telling those stories of people who don't have voices heard in the media all the time. It's what makes really good journalism to me. I think one of the things when uh, I was thinking about some of the questions for tonight and some of the things that we, we could discuss, that we've had a bit of an email chain going this week with throwing some ideas out there. For me, with this topic, there's two very kind of clear things that we can talk about tonight. One is what price are we willing to pay as journalists and as people who are willing to go and dig up these stories and speak truth to power and stand up to powerful football clubs. But the other side of it is equally what price are our audiences and our readers willing to pay in order to support us to do that. And that's increasingly an issue that we as an industry need to look at and not you know, not to just talk about paywalls and price points and things like that, but also to try and talk about ways that we can engage our audiences and we'll get them to buy into difficult stories and to want to turn the page and to want to deal with issues that are difficult and make you, you know, sick in the pit of your stomach or challenge your worldview. And it's and I might save some of these questions for when Louise gets here because, you know, for a lot of those people that that was religion, that was the Catholic Church. A lot of people growing up the Catholic Church didn't want to engage with some of the stories and some of the issues that came out around that, didn't want to deal with Pell, so I'd really like to get her perspective on that when she gets here. So I guess tonight, I guess we can kind of break things up into those two kind of areas. But I think, to be honest, given the time that we have, I think the most interesting thing to do is maybe just to jump in and hear from you guys about some of the more challenging experiences you've had and some of the things you have had to confront as journalists, because we've got some pretty extraordinary experience. Caroline, to start with you again, your role in the Essendon scandal <laughs> was pretty confronting. There was a lot you had to deal with. And yeah, look, you talk about um, prices you have to yeah. pay. I mean, it's never an issue getting people interested in any story about AFL football. That is not that is not a problem, when, particularly when you live in Melbourne or Adelaide or Perth or pretty much all of the Anywhere about New South southern <laughs> seaboard of Australia. But I, I think... and. I didn't make this comparison, but one of our one of the ages, well, Barney Schwartz, who also did a series of brilliant articles on 
child sex abuse, particularly in the Catholic Church, but across a lot of institutions, once said to me during the height of the Essendon crisis, and I would never compare what happened to those players to what happened to abuse victims of that you know Louise and others have written about, but the response and the cover-up was very similar in the way that the club tried to shut down any form of negative voice. You had a, a hero of everybody's in James Hurd, who was, it was much bigger than trying to bring down the Prime Minister. Not that I was trying to bring down James Hurd, but questioning, you know, this great champion and hero who could do no wrong in the eyes of his supporters, who were zealots, a lot of them, not unlike some of the religious fanatics who to this day, you know, even in the last two days, we've heard that there are priests who are going to refuse to honour all the new rules that have come in. It just horrifies me, but I'm digressing. So I think the price I paid was obviously unpopularity, which is something I'm quite used to. And have, ask another question having your children being, well, my youngest daughter in this particular situation being really threatened on social media, tyres let down, being told by James Hurd's media manager that I was finished, that I would be finished by the end of the AFL investigation, media releases coming out on a weekly basis saying I was wrong, that I was inaccurate, and and yet on the other side talking, the, the other price was just the dreadful stories, talking to the mothers and fathers and player managers and lawyers for these players who had no voice, particularly the parents who'd been shut out by the club with all the secrecy around the drugs program, telling me what had happened to their children. And in the end, well, I'm a parent and it just horrified me that you send someone into an institution like the Great Essendon Football Club and this is what happened to them. You know, they sent their children trustingly into a football program and these kids were allowed to be injected, some of them twice a week, for 16 weeks. It was just horrifying. So, yeah, there, there were a lot of prices to pay. Death threats, they told me about later at the age that I wasn't aware of, really. Even my husband saying to me, are you sure, you sure you're right about this? He's an Essendon supporter, so, you know, there was an element of the... But, but he, he came round to my way of thinking pretty quickly when I sort of told him some of the stuff we were uncovering. I, I think it's just... Sometimes you feel as though it's coming at you from all angles. Other media... It could be pretty tough, but I wouldn't compare it to some of the things that some of these guys have had to deal with. Absolutely. I think everyone has had some pretty incredible experiences. I guess for me, what I wanted to, to ask you about was for you, probably more than some of the others, it was a very personal attack and you've had to deal with a lot of stuff in the media in terms of having to really, in terms of your identity and, and who you are and, and, and take on stuff very publicly. And I guess the price you've had to pay for that is a very personal one. How yeah, look, I, I think to a, to a level there is there was some people think I'm not quite sure that there was a, a level of gender based in some of the criticism because there were other journalists who were questioning Essendon and what they were doing, but it seemed that it became sort of Caro versus James. You know, people like to simplify things. And it wasn't just James Hurd, it was Stephen Dank. It was a president who brought in this former club hero without any experience at all and made him coach and put him in charge of the program. It was a CEO who took far too long to resign. There were so many people who were players in this. So, yeah, personal criticism, you know, you get... I don't engage at all on social media. I've got a private Instagram account, but I don't look at Twitter. Obviously, I read emails, and it got to a point where I just pressed delete. I didn't read the abuse because I don't mind a, an intellectual argument with someone. 
about something a club is doing, but when it is just abusive, I just I don't read it. And I would advise that to any young journalist up and coming, do not get obsessed by what people are saying about you on any form of social media. And I know that that goes against a lot of what is great about the new journalism today, but if you're someone who has a high profile, it can just do your head in. It's not worth it. Lisa, do you, I mean, you had some pretty incredible experiences that in, the, in the email thread as well. What, what, I guess, has been one of the most, the biggest challenges you've come up against? So there's been 14 journalists who have been killed in the course of their work this year. And in 2015, actually, I, I was that close to becoming a statistic. I was on an assignment in Papua New Guinea in the capital Port Moresby, and I was in a car with three other members of the Canberra Press Gallery. And we were there to cover the Pacific Island Forum, which incidentally is on at the moment. And so two days before Tony Abbott was due in the country, um, the four of us were in this car coming home um, to our hotel after being at an official event. And we were attacked by a rascal criminal gang in an attempted carjacking. And my photographer colleague, at the time was was driving and he he drove like a stuntman in a movie. It was extraordinary. He just floored it backwards and 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 put his foot down and then we drove down what became a dead end and I thought, fuck, this is not good. Like the shit is really hitting the fan here. And I knew that we were in, like in serious danger. Like this could be a, a Balibo five kind of scenario. And I was the only woman in the car. And I knew that as well as potentially being macheted to death, I, uh, I could be gang raped. And fortunately, we made it out of this situation. So there was a row of petrol drums that had been put in the way and someone moved a petrol drum and, and we got out of that situation. And then um, about a K down the road, our back tyre blew out and we were stranded. And then there was this off-duty copper called Jeremiah, who I like to consider our guardian angel. And he, he pulled over and he helped us fix the tyre and he told us that he had a machine gun in the back of his truck. So if there was any further problems, he had us covered. And, and so, like, two hours later, we, we made it back to the hotel and I was just shaking like a leaf and I, I sat down and started filing a story about the event that we'd just been at because I needed to do something with my hand. And I went to bed that night just shaking and it took a good six months for, for me to, to recover from those post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and that event will, will stay with me like for, for the rest of my life. But a lot of good things have come out of it. I... Um, I raised a lot of money for domestic violence victims in Papua New Guinea because I, I'd done some interviews about domestic violence with a women's shelter over there. And so I knew when I came back to Australia that I would be okay, but those women wouldn't be. And, and I walked the Kokoda Trek last year as a, as a fundraiser. So I now have this amazing, very special, I guess, relationship with Papua New Guinea that, yeah, wouldn't have happened otherwise. That's, I mean, that's a, an incredibly positive, two incredibly positive things that pull out of what is a horrific circumstance that you were in. And I think your ability to even talk about it in this way is pretty amazing. I mean, you can tell already from watching the video, you know, we're, we're two panellists in, and I don't want to put anyone off who's a student who's you know, considering journalism, but there are some, some very real situations like this that, that people are, are faced with. And do you feel like 
it was worth it? Do you feel like the story and the impact that you've had from doing that? I mean, absolutely. Like I, I wanted to be a journalist from, from age 11 and it is such a privilege to be able to, to travel around the world and to visit far-flung places and meet fascinating people. And like I've been on overseas trips with prime ministers. I spent 12 minutes like in the White House Oval Office with Barack Obama and Malcolm Turnbull and, and a press pack. So, like, you don't get those kinds of experiences, like, every day, but, but occasionally, like, it, it can be a little bit glamorous. And I can't imagine doing anything else. And, and yes, 2015 was a difficult year for me, but I feel like I'm, I'm so much stronger and, and more resilient than I ever imagined. It's amazing. I mean, it's difficult for the grant. <laughs> I guess if we're going around and, and sharing more stories, I mean, what's the biggest challenge that you had to face so far? I don't know. I'm fortunate enough that I haven't had too many people trying to take my own life except for a few random anti-vaxxers who tend to hunt me down. One, I had to put a police alert on last week, which wasn't so much fun because he decides to show up at work and try to prevent me from leaving and so on. But, but fortunately, I haven't had too many. I guess a lot of the the issues I have are more, or a lot of the, a lot of the more the things that, that stick to me and get to me and probably keep me awake way too many nights are more the things I see with other people. There's, I remember once I spent a few weeks riding around with paramedics with air ambulance folk for a while, simply because we were trying to do a hero story on them rescuing people, and we ended up having eight flights in a row where the person died, and there's nothing like flying back in a very small helicopter with someone working on the person in front of you and they die and then you just go quiet and you fly back for the rest of the journey then paramedics start with a few jokes and things because they have to lighten the mood and you get back and you go all right we'll, we'll try to get one next time you have a few of those i'm predominantly on the health round so i deal with life and death every day and it's it's quite funny as a parent a lot of the time i'm dealing with with children who aren't going to make it fortunately some do and that that is great when you I always feel sorry for those people I'm reporting on because if I'm reporting on you you've got something that nobody wants if it's interesting enough for me to be interested in it then it ain't good and and you actually learn to get inspired by a lot of those people but it, it doesn't mean it doesn't get to you it doesn't mean that you go home at night and you say oh well that disease normally sets into a child by the age of five and you think great my son's now six so he's safe from that one but the next day working on something that hits a seven-year-old and it, it brings it home you can't not put yourself into this job and if you don't put yourself into the job you're you're not doing it properly i know one of the ones where it was prolonged was was working on baby deaths out of bacchus marsh hospital which people didn't want to discuss and you end up speaking with families whose babies were killed by uh negligent doctors and more negligent practices at a hospital and you're speaking to women whose children may have died three, four years before. Some of them may have been a couple of months before. Yet they've just found out that their children have died for reasons that they didn't know about. And, and in a lot of instances, some of these women are made to feel that it was almost their fault. Or certainly no one was telling them it wasn't their fault that their children died. And then all of a sudden, they're having to go through the trauma. And you're speaking to them and you're acting as a counsellor as much as a journal. And half the time you speak to these people and you walk back get back to the office and you go, well, I can't actually use any of that. You just, you have to make a decision that those people aren't in a position where that can go in the paper. You spend twice as much time with them because you can't leave them like that. And you know, those things sit with you. 
Welcome, Louise. <laughs> I don't want you, to, you guys to feel left out, but and there's quite a bit, I guess, in there that I would like to unpack. I mean, for the three of you, I guess, going into these stories and going into these moments in your careers which have been quite defining and that have probably really challenged you personally as well as professionally, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Did it just happen and did you roll with it? Did you consciously think, okay, there's a potential here for this to impact my family? Do I need to talk to my husband? Do I need to take photos of my kid down from Instagram? You know, and how did you kind of wrestle with that and what made you make the decision that despite the risk, it's still something that you want to go ahead and do? And was it a conscious decision or is it something that you just kind of were just faced with? I think you get stubborn and if someone's pushing back on you and trying to make life hard, generally it means what you're doing is valuable and so you push harder. You learn that, I think you learn to push back and, you know, you there's nothing, I think most journalists, if they're told not to do something, will only push twice as hard. You, you just can't put up with that rubbish. I know years ago I was writing stuff that was pissing people off and I don't like social media, even my Twitter profile doesn't have my photo, but I'd made a mistake of doing a charity campaign where I had to wear tracksuit pants and lipstick and stuff for a day. So a heap of people that didn't like me got that photo and circulated that around to say that was my normal photo. That's what led to these assholes bailing me up in a coffee shop and threatening me and so on. Don't know how they recognise me, decision. quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely does have an impact on your family. So I waited about three weeks when I had gotten back from Papua New Guinea before I told my parents what had happened to me because there was no way that I could tell them while I was still over there in potential danger and in harm's way. And I lived in Canberra at the time. I was working in the Canberra Press Gallery and my, my folks live in Bendigo and I was trying to convince mum and dad to come visit and my mum was like, oh, your father's been on the, on the road a lot this week. We couldn't possibly come up and visit. And so I had to do it over Skype. And so they're, they're on the screen and, and I, I told them what had happened. And just watching my mum put like her face in her hands, like she was just beside herself that I had had been in this situation and that was heartbreaking to see and when you've got such a thirst for adventure and and you want to get out there all guns blazing and sort of see the world and and, and be a foreign correspondent and, and go to dangerous places like it, it does have an impact on the people left behind and I've been reading Peter Grester's book for the past month and obviously that had an enormous impact on, on his family. They all had to go and sort of stop their lives to, to go over to Egypt to visit him in jail. So it does affect more than just the journalist. But you never consider backing away. I mean, the thing about the story is that even if you haven't broke... With the Essendon drug scandal, I didn't break the initial story... Some, like the Carlton salary cap I did, the West Coast drug scandal I didn't. I mean, that was sort of an unfolding nightmare that went on for about two years. The Wayne Carey situation at North Melbourne when he was having an affair with his vice-captain's wife. I remember going to an investigative reporters and editors conference once in America and the great Pete Hamill said, you just have to own the story. You have to own it and the longer it goes, the more you have to continue to own it, whether or not you broke it in the first place. And that is why you would never, ever, ever consider walking away from something. I mean, the more carnage and the more bloodshed, as upsetting as it can get, and some, in your case, literal, and in my case, although, you, you know, do you get a group of big blokes standing over you as you're getting into your car with their arms folded looking pretty threatening, you would never consider stopping. 
I get. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Is you know, and we're speaking mostly to a room here of, of students and people who are about to embark on their career. So the point I'm trying to make is how much of this should we just expect is part and parcel of the job, and how much should we prepare ourselves for it, and how do we do that, and how much of it should we say, you know what, this is not okay. Journalists shouldn't have to put up with some of this behaviour and. You know, maybe we can do better in the industry to protect each other for our editors. I don't, I don't think the other, danger but... is is quality journalists and journalism and finances. In I think the danger is just the supportive editors and supportive sub editors. Some of you know becoming a bit of a dying art. I know, but you need and and we need to all be more supportive of each other. That is where the danger lies for me. I was just going to say on that point. I think the other thing that can help to protect us is absolute rigour in our jobs. It's fact-checking. It's, you know, having the backup of legal support. It's making sure that you're right, you know. And one of the things that I find really concerning now is this move to online journalism where we've seen just recently the BuzzFeed example where a journalist didn't ask a politician for comment about an extremely damaging story. My husband works in comms and he continually gets people saying, oh, by the way, the story's up, can you comment? These online journalists, I'm sorry, I'm like these kids, you know, back in my day, but seriously, it has to stop because if we are going to maintain our integrity as a profession, we have to be able to say that we did everything to do the right thing by people. And I think some of us on, on this panel, like we've been around for, from a time where you had so much around you, you know? And I feel like now at Four Corners, we have so much around us. We're so lucky to have that. But I feel, you know, concerned for some of the younger journalists who are really exposed, who don't have perhaps you know, the backup of a lot of corporate knowledge, of years of experience, people who can kind of look after them and make sure they don't write lurid headlines about someone that's going to absolutely destroy their career without even bothering to ask them if it happened. Or, or fight back when someone edits their work or puts something in there that's got their name to it that perhaps they are not comfortable with. Yeah, and that's also, I guess, a problem in, yeah, in some... But I think this stuff is, you know, really, really important and we have to come to terms with it. Sure. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that because I think yeah. you started at the project a week ago and you've yeah. been doing a lot of it. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it reminds me of when I, you know, just a few years ago I was a lot like a lot of the students in this crowd. Starting off as a journal, especially in TV, I was put in situations that I didn't think I'd ever be in, seeing, you know, people killed, people jumping off trains, those sort of situations and that, as you guys were saying, there really wasn't any support from those above me to be able to deal with those situations. And, of course, you've got the pressure of having to be first as well in those environments and also having to be in those challenging situations and be great at your job and impress those above you. So there's all those different factors and then you kind of, you know, you've got this conflicting, you know, I'm struggling to deal with what's happening around me but I'm also trying to be progressing my career, which a lot of you know the people in this room might see themselves in quite shortly. But it definitely reminds me of when I was doing an independent story and I was reporting on an event in the city. So it was a protest, left and right-wing protesters, 
And I'm sure a lot of you guys remember a couple of years ago, there was quite a lot of clashes between the two. And I had set up this really great interview with the leader of a right-wing group, who I won't mention names, and obviously me being the way I look from born to migrant parents, I didn't think the the person who I was setting this interview up with knew that I was, I guess, you know, from a migrant background myself. And so I went to this interview, obviously thinking I was going to write this great story or film it, I didn't know which one at that point, and pitch it as a young journal, you know, as you do. And so I got there and I waited and he asked me to meet him around the corner, somewhere really discreet, which was a little bit scary, and I went by myself. I had my cameraman or my friend actually with a camera at the time was following me, making sure I was okay. But this gentleman took one look at me and said, oh, no, I, I don't want to talk to you. And I was like, but, you know, you, you've promised me this exclusive and I'm, you know, like really interested in, and again, the lack of experience and the lack of support at the time. And he was like, nah, nah, you're one of them, you know. I don't want to talk to you, you're one of them. So he didn't know that I was from, you know, had a migrant background. And that was traumatising to hear, especially when you're like, but I want to write a fair and balanced story. I want to present this story that's fair and balanced. And then the social media that followed that, you know, and that still happens to me today on my Twitter, constantly getting attacked by these very far-right groups um, who still follow my work just because of that one event. So it definitely does take its toll, but some really good things have come out of it. Writing about my experience actually helped other people come out and talk about their experiences with these same people. So there's always positives, and I think when you're starting out, it's very hard to get the guidance that you need, but there's definitely ways that you can go around it. It's a good point, and I think it would be good to hear from everyone about how you do deal with these circumstances. How do you deal with seeing really traumatic things? How do you deal with being someone's counsellor? How do you deal with people who perhaps are sources and come to you in a story and, and, and can't let things go, or perhaps you can't publish their story or you can't help them in the way that they want to? And How do you deal with, I guess, the stress and, and some of the trauma that you have to deal with in, in each of your roles? And what tips would you have for, for these guys for their careers? Look, for me personally, I think a lot of it was having to sit down with my thoughts and really understand what had happened throughout my career and really reevaluate and seek the support of my peers as well. Other journalists who'd been through it really helped. And talking about it and also writing, I've actually written a lot of opinion pieces about my experiences, really helped. And coming out and being brave enough to say, look, this is what's happened to me. You know, these leaders of these groups have affected me, but you know, I'm still telling my story. And I think that's really for me personally, why I wanted to be a journalist in the first place. So you kind of come full circle. And I think if anyone, you know, young journos were out there and students who are going to be in the industry quite soon, the best advice I can give is really try and seek support from other people who've experienced it. And I mean, I had a really good support network of journalists above me who were able to give me really good advice as well. So, and yeah, stay true to yourself because if you know that you're doing the right thing, you're reporting a story that means something to you, as long as you're being fair and accurate and balanced, you know, that's the main thing really, yeah. Louise, we famously talked about some of the stories that you've covered, that you've had to protect sources with respect to the, the coverage of the Catholic Church and PAL. I mean, how have you dealt with, I guess, the weight of, of, of telling other people's stories and taking on some of, you know, their trauma and, and protecting them? I don't know, it's kind of layers and layers and layers of sadness, basically. And the point is, it's their sadness, you know. I don't like to say, woe is me, because 
I feel like I'm very privileged to be able to tell their stories and to bring power to account. However, in taking on someone like George Pell, it's, it's a big thing to take on, a big person to take on, a big institution to take on, and, you know, <laughs> you have to deal with a few slings and arrows along the way. So, in case people don't know, I did a story for 7.30. There was a story in the Herald Sun about there being an investigation into George Pell, and it wasn't sourced. It was, you know, one of those stories that newspapers often do where you don't know where it's come from. And at the time, I was preparing to cover George Pell's evidence from Rome, and I am ashamed to say I didn't believe it, the story. And I now know that it takes an average of 33.3 years for a victim of Catholic clergy to come forward and that these people were well inside that time frame. Anyway, I started, you know, doing the shoe leather journalism because I was asked to and I found the men who complained about George Pell who had already complained to the police and we did a story for 730 and, you know, I remember, I, I write about this in my book, which I later wrote about this issue. The day that the story came out, I just remember, I felt like I was stepping into shark-infested waters and I had lemonade running through my veins. And as a result of all of that, I, I wrote a book called Cardinal, The Rise and Fall of George Pell. And the day after Cardinal was published, the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions made it known publicly that they were sending the Pell brief back to Victoria Police and they were free to charge if they wished. Six weeks later, he was charged with multiple offences, which we still don't know the quantum and nature of because we live in Victoria, the suppression state. Anyway, I digress. So as a result of being involved in this, I became a witness. So I was a witness who had to give evidence in George's committal proceeding. I was cross-examined for six and a half hours by Robert Richter. I was subjected to appalling sexism. I... <laughs> the distortion that went on was just unbelievable. And, you know, there was one point where for 90 minutes I was cross-examined about the difference between the anus, the sphincter and the rectum. And it just went on and on and on and on. I mean, essentially, the thesis was how far up someone's anus was the cardinal's digit. In the end, I just said to him, you know, I don't think too much about you know, these definitions. You're talking about someone who was making an allegation about something that happened when they were eight years old. So... It was a pretty horrible experience, but by the end of it, I know he went in there thinking that he was going to smash me. He was so raring for a fight, and he didn't. And when he didn't, he did not know what to do, and he huffed and puffed. <laughs> and he didn't blow the house down. <laughs> and it was, you know, I came out of there, and I remember Crown said to me, Sorry if you felt so lonely up there, because they didn't intervene pretty much at all. But you didn't need us. And, you know, I sort of felt like I did a good job. But the next day, I couldn't move. Like, I couldn't get out of bed. And I just felt like I'd been hit, you know, by a truck. And 
And I just thought about the people, you know, whose stories I had been covering, who I had come to know, and how those broken men fared in those circumstances, and it politicised me and it made me think, we have to do this better. But it didn't stop there. I mean, I didn't expect that it would because he was committed to trial. So there were to be two trials and the first one was suppressed. And because it was suppressed, and you heard a snippet of this on the video, they tried to get my confidential sources. So they, they wanted notes, text messages, emails, etc., from confidential sources, you know, who come from this community of people really profoundly betrayed. And for people who have been victims of abuse, betrayal is, is, is so much worse. And so I was not going to do that. But anyway, as a journo, we all know, like, start giving away your sources, you are finished. And so I couldn't do that. But because there was a suppression order in relation to the first trial that was coming up, the Choir Boys trial, I had to bring on a hearing, get, you know, a QC and junior and ABC legal, and fortunately the ABC backed me in the whole way to represent me in court to object to this subpoena to get the sources. And when it, had, it first became apparent to me that this would probably happen, I thought, he won't do this because it's not very good PR for him to be sort of going after me. But, of course, he didn't have to worry about PR because it was secret. So I had this hearing that, you know, no one knew about at the time. And it was pretty scary. I remember my lawyer saying to me on the way in there, okay, so I know you don't want to give your stuff to Hale's people, but what if the judge says in order to determine whether I should grant you the journalist's privilege and let you protect your sources, I want to see this material? And I said, well, I would have thought that a county court judge is in the very class of people about whom my sources wouldn't want their information given to. And anyway, we just don't give up our sources, so it's a moot point. So he said, well, you need to understand, Louise, that if you lose this, you'll be prosecuted for contempt of court. And it still carries a prison penalty, even though it's rarely exercised. So are you sure that this is what you want to do? And, you know, there were other colleagues from the ABC, my old boss was in there, and I said to her, I'm right, aren't I? I'm right. And she went, yeah. <laughs> it was just this moment of, oh, my God, what is going to happen here? I just have no idea. But, you know, you just march on. And so I marched on into court and we came up with the idea of applying to the Victorian Attorney General under the Charter of Human Rights because prosecuting journalists in secret for not giving sources to people alleged of multiple counts of child sexual offences is problematic at best. So when we did that, they realised that that would delay the trial and I didn't get the sense that they were well-versed in human rights law, which didn't really surprise me very much. And they caved. But that was months, it was eight months of trauma, stress, not knowing where it was sort of going to go, 
but also it gave me such profound empathy for the people that had, after all those years, plucked up the courage to say what this man did to them. And, you know, from the Catholic Church, from business leaders, from politicians, ex-prime ministers, they are met with denial, obfuscation. They are met with disdain. They are met with a lack of empathy, a lack of Christian empathy, a lack of kindness. Imagine. Yeah. And then they have to go through this court thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're, they're substance abusers a lot of the time. They're, they're, they're people who, you know, they're broken. And as I said to Richter on that day, you know, it's like <laughs> it, it, they're the perfect witness for him because they're sort of crushed and they spat out the other side and then they're supposed to defend themselves against this inordinately well-resourced defendant mm. whose QC treats them like dirt. And that's the thing too. I mean, you raise a great point in, in telling that story. In, in this industry, a good lawyer is uh, worth their weight in gold yeah. and, and being obviously well-versed in media law is an absolute must. But I guess... As we've seen recently with MFP raids, with the Witness K, there's, there's been a number of different examples where journalism and keeping the sources contained and, and protecting what we do as an industry has really come under threat. So, I mean, that is something that I'd also really like to talk about. But We have to strengthen the journalist privilege. At the moment, it's discretionary for a judge and in the hands of the wrong judge, it's potentially tyranny. And we have to, like the Minister Dutton the other day put out a ministerial directive direction about the AFP raids and what had happened to, you know, poor Annika and having cops going through her undies, undies drawer. You know, that's not enough. We need legislation to protect media. It's really, really important. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of your experience and, and even with respect to, to whistleblower laws and, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts, Grant, do you think... Where do you sit with them? Do you feel like they need to be strengthened? Do you feel like they're enough? What's your, what's your thought? Absolutely, they need to be strengthened. I mean, we've just, not directly involved, aside from having too many coffees and counselling a mate, but we've just been through Lawyer X at our paper where we fought for five years to be able to write a story. Um, I could not begin to tell you how much that costs. Justin Quill tends to charge way too much. But, I mean, that, the determination, that, that is simply trying to wear down to not publish something and to put more obstacles and more obstacles and more obstacles. That's one of those ones where you ask about why you keep going. It's just pig-headedness, I think, and, and good on the editor and good on Anthony. But there are no protections. You're left floating out on the breeze. And if you... that That's about... I've never wanted to be an editor. I've never wanted to push up for that. I enjoy dealing with people too much and, and writing their stories. But, my God, when you have a good editor at, at any organisation, in any medium, they are the strongest people for them to stand up and back in, back, back in Louise, back in Dowsley, back in Cara when she's got half of Essendon and their cronies coming after them. What does that practically look like? Because that was the question I was going to ask is, you know, when you do have a good editor and you've got good people around you, what does that look like? How do you seek out someone that you know has got your back? And Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've had... I'll try not to use... Names in here, anyone who's been around the media might know who this person is. I've had about five editors, so it's a pretty small pool. But I had one where there was somebody very well placed in the state government who 
wasn't doing us a lot of favours. Everything went to them with, they just dead batted, dead batted, dead batted. And this was when there was a lot of, a lot of very interesting stuff going on. A lot of Simon Overland, Ken Jones type things that we were working on. And they were refusing to talk to us. And even on things that had nothing to do with that, just through bitterness and so on. Now, one day I wrote something they didn't like and I'm in the newsroom and the editor's phone rang. And he's looked at the number and he's not a number that generally calls. And instead of answering it, he actually just put it on speakerphone and just went, what do you want? And they called to complain about me. And I won't use his language, but he just went, so you're calling to complain about a reporter? I went, yep. And he just went, I'll, I will use the language. And he just went, well, go fuck yourself because you never answer the call when we're trying to call you. So if you want to call and complain, fuck off. And just hung up. And about five minutes later, the phone rang again. And he went, oh, you're offering a story. And they went, no. And he went, oh, piss off then. <laughs> and that, my hero. <laughs> it was great. You know, essentially, I put my hand on my heart and said they didn't have a reason to complain. But when you see that level of support, you, you know you'll get there. You'll, you'll know if you do do something wrong, you're not going to be left hanging. Liz, how do you feel about for, for me, a good editor is someone who's willing to write a cheque to buy you a $20,000 barrister for an FOI legal case that goes to the tribunal. And, uh, and so that happened to me last year. I broke a major story about Peter Dutton granting visas to a couple of au pairs under very unusual circumstances. And the Freedom of Information Act is just a joke. Like, you... It took me two years before I could publish a single word. And that, that was a huge scandal in Australian politics. And, and it, was, it was in the public interest to know why those girls got special treatment when other people don't. And when you, you've got the AFL CEO who can make a couple of calls for his cousin, it's ridiculous. But on a more visceral level, I think you also need editors a bit like what Grant was saying, who don't care so much about fraternising with the top end of town. Because, I mean, that, that's a classic example, the Dutton story, the nanny gate. You know, Gillan McLaughlin, in a couple of media boardrooms that I know about, and, and the AFL do this better than anyone, they turn it into a joke, and so it becomes almost... It lightens the load. They've done it on so many occasions, and I know it wasn't a story that involved life or death, but so he gets up at the the grand final pre-game and said, you know, been a great final series and as you know, it's really hard to get a good babysitter. And, you know, and I saw a couple of very senior editors laughing and I thought, oh, that's pathetic. You know, this is a big story and don't engage in the gag, you know, that's not... And they do it so well and I think so you need, you need them not to worry about whether they're getting, in my game, tickets to the Brownlow or a seat at the best grand final pre-game lunch... If it's in a boardroom, and this has happened to me, where AFL CEOs have just torn me apart in front of editors-in-chief, and on one occasion they defend you, and another one, everyone's silent and leave you to do it. So it's actually as much about the emotional support, I think, in some cases, obviously financial as well. It's quite interesting with the AFL. Like, when I first came back to Melbourne, I was living in Sydney for eight years. I reckon they exercise power, like... Almost no other. I have. Ne- it's like a cult. It's just unbelievable. 
I'll never forget going to a press conference with Andrew Demetriou, and I can't even remember what it was on this particular story, but he was annoyed with me. And I remember on this particular day, there were all these blokes standing around, like they're hardly, I don't remember any women. And it was a cold day and everyone was wearing suits with like black overcoats. Like, and it was like the mafia or something. And, and, and Welcome they're Welcome to my world, Louise. Yes, I don't know how you do it. You're like, you are a queen that you can put up with this. Anyway, and I remember I was wearing this red jacket. So I was quite visible and I was coming from a long distance from my car and he clocked me and he gave me this laser gaze and it was just like, what the fuck is she doing here? Like it was just like, and he treated me with utter disdain. And it, it, like politicians are, they at least know that they have to be sort of held to account, but it is very difficult to hold that organisation to account because they're a monopoly. And I'm guessing it gets both easier and more difficult in your career as you go along. I guess easier because people might come to you with stories as if you're a recognised person in, in a particular area or you've, you've covered a particular topic, but in situations like that, doors will just close in your face because <laughs> you're a troublemaker or you're someone who's well, going <laughs> to... I don't know, I've kind of got that... someone if you try hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's sort of, I don't know, I'm sure you're, you're the same, I sort of have that sort of Irish temper of like, this man will not beat me. <laughs> and it actually just makes me more determined and it did in that case and he looked really bad. There is just one thing that I, one more thing that I want to talk about and we just touched on it briefly here talking about lawyers but it's about resources and doing quality journalism is incredibly resource intensive. It costs money, it takes time, you need stringers, you need interpreters, you need fact checkers, you need lawyers and you need time and you know I'm really lucky that I'm currently editor at, at Inc which is a specific public interest journalism initiative which is dedicating that time and money to exactly that and we are incredibly rare and I know that that's incredibly lucky but the difficulty that we have and that, and that everyone else has is in um, in making sure that our stories still speak to people and making sure that people still care and that they still engage with what we're doing and like you said earlier Lisa making sure that it's in plain English that it's something that you know people can understand when we're speaking truth to power and we're talking about corruption and we're trying to pull apart really complex institutions and businesses and things like that that are, you know, perhaps important but boring, how do we go about doing that and how do we make that accessible for people? This is actually a happy one, I think. Well, very good. Good, we need that. It's been um, pretty... <laughs> but I think this is one that I've had recently and it sits top of my mind because it's probably consumed me for the last year, but it pulls all of these things in one... I remember going to my editor one day and saying, look, I've heard of a set of conjoined twins that no one will help. Can I go help? He said, oh, great story. Yeah, yeah, okay. He said, where is it? I said, oh, Bhutan. And he didn't know where it was, so he said yes, because he thought it was quite close. Um, it's in the western suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> Near Bendigo. <laughs> but then he said, oh, well, actually, look, it's too far to go. We'll write a story. There's no way we'll keep it. So, you know, we'll just do a story saying we'll run a fundraiser and get them here. And I said, oh, no, no, we actually haven't got a medical team or anything. So I worked to get a medical team. Anyway, it took about six or eight months to get a hospital and to get surgeons interested in taking them on. And by that stage, I went and said, oh, I've got to start getting visas. And he said, oh, I haven't, I haven't heard about it because I hadn't spoken to him for six months. And he said, oh, no one's actually heard about it. The story's still secretive. And I said, yeah, no, people in Bhutan don't even know about them. So then he said, oh, all right, well, you can go and get them. So 
picked a photographer and we went over there, which then took another six months because that hospital pulled out, we had to get another one. But the point of that was, it actually became a personal thing where it was to try, we had to make the story big because we needed three to $500,000 to pay for the surgery because there was no way anyone was going to pay for it. So we needed this story to go, to go big. So we did go over and, and get them in the end because there was no one else kind of to get them as well. But it cost a fortune. We don't, newspapers, we don't have that money. So this was an extraordinary effort by the editor to back it in, who'd never seen a photo of them because I patient confidentiality, I couldn't go showing photos. And he backed it in and, and let us go to Bhutan. But it was on the condition that when we did the story, we'd film a lot of footage and we'd give it out for free so all the other media could jump on board and make the story go bigger because we had a moral obligation <laughs> to, to pay for the freaking surgery when they got it. But that's incredible because, I mean, I come from a TV world where you would film that and you're not sharing that. That's an exclusive, that's exclusive content and then you would find a way to make that pay for itself. So I was just about to say, it's incredible that you went and did that and you brought the twins here and that was a huge story. And we at the project, we, we covered that. We piggybacked off that and, you know, we could use that. So, I mean, that's yeah. quite an interesting, I guess, I don't even think way to try make your money back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, that, but it was good because then, again, that story broke while I was on the plane on the way back don't ever try to catch a long flight with conjoined twins on your knee screaming. It's not awesome. But we landed not knowing whether the story had been picked up or not, and it was insane when we landed. But a lot of the time you do a story and it doesn't resonate, you move on to the next one and you're petrified that you've nothing you do counts. But on that one, it was good because the money rolled in and there was, there was 140, 180,000 raised in 24 hours for them. Then we got a call, I, got, I actually got a text from someone well-placed in the government offering to pay for the surgery. As I landed, I got a text on my phone offering the money. And so within an hour of landing, we had the surgery paid for. But not only that, the community bought in, and they didn't just buy in through us, they bought in through other media that were following it. And it's lovely to see that people do give a shit about good stories. They do give a, uh, if you tell the story right and you put some humanity into it, people do care and people do buy in and you know, that's, it happens to every journal all the time. That's just the one that sits at the top of my mind because it's consumed me for a while. Did you but cry like a baby when you got to meet them? <laughs> I, I, I cried that night because it's hard and there's footage because it is, I don't know, third world hospital, there are people everywhere and we're sitting waiting to meet them but other people kept bringing their kids in to see the surgeon because they could see a man in a white coat and they need their kid treated. So we couldn't get to speak to anyone then all of a sudden, mum just walks in and starts chatting to us and then takes the top off and passes me the kids. And I'm like, oh, God, this is happening, Alex. Are you taking photos? But then we don't want to take photos. We kind of agreed we wouldn't do any interviews or anything until we got to know them properly. But mum built up trust with us really quickly. And so it was only the emotion came in later. Going home was a lot more emotional. But yeah. And when you realise that in third world countries credit cards don't work and you can't pay for your hotel room and you have to actually get people who don't have any money to cover your way that bad. Well, thank you, everyone. <laughs> uh, it's been a relatively long session and, and a lot of stuff covered. I mean, there was a lot to get through, a lot of pretty incredible experiences. I feel like we scratched the surface, but it's been a really great session. So thank you. Um, and thanks for having us. <laughs>
listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia.